Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the class. We're starting chapter 7 today of 1 Corinthians. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time together today. We pray your spirit will guide and direct our thinking and that we'll be able to understand and apply the truths we see in this portion of Scripture. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. just never wants to work right for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why. Well, I'll do it from over there. Um, We're looking at marriage and divorce. At least this section has a lot to say about those two topics. But we're beginning a new section. But before we do, we must have our quiz from last week. Number one, Paul argues against going to pagan judges because they are corrupt. False. False. They may be, but that's not his argument here. It's just that uh, they don't share Christian values and you're airing out maybe Christian disputes or other things. Minor criminal matters should always be settled by the church. No, no, we don't settle criminal matters. Three, the sinful behavior of some of the Corinthians cast doubts about the genuineness of their faith. True. Paul was in agreement with the Corinthians' view of Christian liberty. False. He didn't agree with that. He saw, you know, we have freedom in Christ. It's freedom over these non-essentials. He talks about Romans, particularly Romans 14. Uh, But not freedom to just sin. Five, Paul believed in the sacredness of the human body. Truth. All right. So, last week we talked about, uh, we finished up uh, chapter 6. We talked about chapter 6. And those that chapter 6 fell into that second major division, problems communicated by common rumor. Paul says it's commonly reported. So we take that to mean that he heard about these problems, these difficulties, and those were immorality in the church, particularly the in the case of incest was the kind of immorality. Then there were these lawsuits, and then this question about Christian liberty. They were abusing what we might call Christian liberty. Now we come to the next major section in the book, and that's uh, problems communicated by official letter, 7-1 through 16-9. Um, I say with the words, now for the matters you wrote about, Paul begins a new section of this letter by responding to a letter sent to him from the Corinthians. Now remember, we already said that Paul established this church in Acts chapter 18, and then he left and he uh, goes to Ephesus briefly, comes back to Jerusalem, Antioch, goes back to, he's in Ephesus right now on his third missionary journey, and he spends three years in Ephesus. And we said that he's already written a previous letter, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and following, that he refers to here. He wrote to them a previous letter, and uh, they have now responded back to him with a letter. Because he says, now, for the matters you wrote about. So they have written him a letter 
in response to his first letter. So this makes, you know, this makes interpreting uh, this epistle a little difficult because we're just seeing one side of the conversation. We, we don't, we don't know exactly what they were saying. We, we're not positive about all the things they said and all their positions, all their viewpoints. I say this is probably not a friendly exchange in which the new believers in Corinth are simply asking spiritual advice from the apostle. Their letter was a response to Paul's previous letter in 5.9 in which they were probably taking exception to a number of Paul's instructions in light of their own theology of the spirit with heavy emphasis on wisdom and knowledge we've talked about. They probably see themselves as having arrived. Remember we talked about this over-realized eschatology. You know, Paul says... Um, they think they've begun to reign. They have this over-realized that they have, they've arrived spiritually. So their letter may have reflected, may, you know, a little bit of this, why can't we rather than what should we do? So they may be, it may be more that we want to do this, we think we should do this. He's written a letter, and they think, you know, we should be able to do this. So starting in chapter 7, Paul takes up the various items and the letter one by one, most of them introduced by the words now about. You'll hear sometimes preachers mention this Greek expression, peri dead. Peri dead is an expression that occurs throughout this section. And it just means concerning, now concerning, or now about. And it marks off the fact that Paul is taking up topics from the letter. Here he says, now about the matters you wrote about. But later on, he doesn't. He doesn't say, now about the matters you wrote about. He just says, peri dead, now about, now about, which we see is just a continuation of that idea. Now about, now about, now about this, you wrote now about this, and so forth. So the first one we deal with is chapter 7. And chapter 7 deals with marriage and related matters. Marriage and related matters. I say verses 1 through 16 basically deal basically with those who are already married or who have frequently been married but whose marriages have been formerly been married but whose marriages have been dissolved. So so this is somewhat important here. We can divide this chapter up into people as to their marital status. 1 through 16 is people who are already married or have formerly been married but their marriages have been dissolved, most commonly by death. Verses 25 through 38 deal with a special group who have yet to be married. He calls them virgins. Apparently, there's been considerable pressure within the church to dissolve or abstain from marriage. Paul's response to both, which is found in the central section, is stay as you are. So for some reason, we'll talk about those reasons... They're thinking about dissolving marriages. They're also questioning whether one should get married. And uh, Paul's central advice is stay as you are. We'll see how that works. The Corinthian position on these things is found in 1B, where Paul again quotes them. Quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Thus, the Corinthians were arguing for celibacy in marriage, and if that was not workable, then divorce from unbelieving partners. This also means remaining single if you are a virgin or a widow or a widower. Thus, the Corinthians were advocating celibacy as a rule or norm and considered sex to be a sin. 
That's apparently the case. When you look at what Paul will say later on, he says about a different subject, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. So marriage is not a sin. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 736. He said, uh, if anyone is uh, worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to and so forth, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. Now he brings, I mean, this is odd language for a Jewish man like the Apostle Paul. You have to understand what the Jews thought about marriage. The Jews thought, and almost still, now it's changed today because it's not changed among Orthodox Jews or ultra-Orthodox Jews, but Jews felt that marriage was an obligation on a man. It was it was a scriptural obligation to be married. I was reading a lot of the rabbis this week, and I, I, I maybe should have put some of those quotes up, but it's just amazing what they talk about. You, you just have to get married... You should be married in your teens. You must be married by the time you're 25. It's just an absolute obligation to be married in the Jewish culture of that day. And so here's Paul saying, <laughs> strangely, <laughs> you know, if you marry, it's not a sin. That, that a Jew would say, "What do you mean? It's a marriage. It's, it's a sin if you don't." So he's reacting apparently to their situation. Apparently, this comes from them that they think it'd be better. It's, it's almost sinful. In light of our our new state as Christians, we're above all these things. We've arrived. We're in the you know we're almost in the kingdom. We'll see how that works in a moment here. Um, what would seem to lie behind this position is difficult to tell. Paul doesn't spell it out. As we noted in the last chapter, it was a view of at least some in the Roman world that sexual relations in marriage were primarily for procreation and that husbands should fulfill their sexual desires with prostitutes or others. Okay, maybe that's part of it. One commentator says, there may have been, they may have been influenced by philosophical discussions. There were some philosophical talks about marriage. Medical debates, local religious cults, certain cults forbid marriage. Uh, theological assumptions, enthusiasm for higher spiritual experiences, practical excellencies, or a combination of all of these, Garland says. Others suggest that the Corinthians, who thought of themselves as especially spiritual, may have viewed themselves as above this earthly existence, having already arrived, 4.8 we looked at, and institutions like marriage that will pass away in this age to come. For some reason, they had this attitude, and uh, we'll see it played out here. So the first thing we see is behavior within marriage, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Here we're dealing with those who are married or have been married previously. The first section is basically a response to some who have argued for cessation of sexual relations within marriage on the basis of their slogan, it's good for a man not to have sexual, not to have relations with a woman. On the basis of the slogan, this slogan, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They're arguing for abstinence of sexual relations within marriage. And apparently since abstinence may be difficult for some, then maybe they're arguing divorce would be a good thing if you can't have abstinence within marriage. And uh, definitely 
You would want a divorce if your partner is a pagan, because you wouldn't want to be associated with a pagan. We'll see how that works in a moment. Let's look at that then. Paul says marital celibacy is not to be practiced. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now for the matters you wrote about. Quote, here's what they are saying, the Corinthians. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The words, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations, not to touch a woman, uh, literally is what it touch a woman, are another quotation from the Corinthians. Literally, this says uh, not touch a woman. And, uh, you know, if you look at the literal Greek, not touch a woman. But that's always used in Greek literature in the sense of it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, this passage has been difficult to interpret. The NIV, I think, has it right here. And if you look at the ESV now, look at the newer translations, they all have this as a quote from the Corinthians. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman as a quotation from the Corinthians. But in earlier days, this was a real problem. If you look at earlier translations, for instance, the 1984 NIV says here, it's good for a man not to marry. Not to marry. Where did they get that from? Well, they were interpreting what was how this passage was kind of commonly interpreted in the past. And the reason it was interpreted that way is because people read this and they read it says, Now it's good now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to touch a woman literally, they took that, people said, well, that's what Paul is saying. Then Paul is saying, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So here's Paul saying, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And even though they always knew that that meant sex, that's a euphemism for sexual relations, even though they knew that, they said, that's a problem. Paul can't be saying that. Or how can Paul say it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman when right away in verse 3 he says you must. <laughs> he commands it in verses 3 and 4. He says if you're married, you are have a duty to have sexual relations with your wife and the wife of the husband. So this is crazy. How can Paul on the one hand in verse 1 say it's good for a man not to have sexual relations and then in verse 3, command it. Well, he said, okay, Paul, this touch a woman, even though we know it always means have sexual relations, we think it means something different in verse 1. It means don't marry. So they have, so the NIV, if you read that, on 1884, it says, now it's good for a man not, it's good for a man not to marry. And that's Paul saying that. But, because of fornication, I'm going to concede marriage. So that's the way it was interpreted. That's incorrect. Very clearly it's incorrect because to touch a woman is a euphemism for sexual relations. Paul is not going to be saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman because in verse 3 he commands it. (laughs) So most everybody agrees now, and you'll see it in the ESV translation, the the Christian Standard Bible translations, newer translations, they all translate this with quotation marks like we have here. So that this is the Corinthians. Paul is res- responding to the Corinthian slogan here. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations. Their position may have gone something like, since you, are, since you, Paul, are unmarried and are not actively seeking marriage, and since you have commanded us in your previous letter to abstain from sexual immorality, is it not so that one is better off not to have sexual intercourse at all? After all, in the new age... 
that we have already entered by the Spirit, there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage in the future in heaven. Why should we not be as the angels now? Besides, since the body counts for nothing, if some wish to fulfill physical needs, they are always they're always the prostitutes, he says. So this is trying to make sense of how could they say something like this? Why would the Corinthians say something like this? These are ideas. Well, Paul will have none of that, verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The but with which this sentence begins indicates Paul is now giving his position in contrast to the Corinthians' viewpoint in verse 1. Paul rejects the Corinthians' advocacy of marital celibacy. Instead, married couples should continue in full sexual relations with their own partners. Married couples, because of the danger of sexual immorality, should continue in full sexual However, Paul makes it clear that these sexual relations are not only are only to be with one's own husband or wife. So Paul is saying no to their slogan. No. Their slogan is, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. As far as married people are concerned. Paul means, let each man who is already married continue in relations with his own wife and each wife likewise. And that means a full conjugal life as he's going to explain in verses 3, 4, and 5 in detail. So Paul's discussion reflects the uniform biblical stance on sex. Fundamentally in the Bible, there are two types of sex. There's sex within marriage and there's sexual immorality. There's sex within marriage. Everything else is sexual immorality. B, marriage involves physical obligations binding on both husband and wife. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority of her own, over her own body, but yields to it to her husband. And the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Paul now elaborates on verse 2. Concerning mutual sexual relations, these verses emphasize that sexual relationships are a duty within marriage because the body is not one's free possession but belongs to one's spouse. The language implies that married couples are indebted to one another sexually. Sex is not something the husband does to the wife. Instead, the husband's body belongs to the wife in the same way that hers does to him. This, The viewpoint expressed here by Paul is probably to be traced back to the instructions concerning a slave wife in Exodus 21, 7 through 11. Now we have a case where the Israelites on occasions, would they had slaves, remember? They would capture people and so forth. They had to free them after seven years and so forth, but our person could sell themselves into slavery. But this talks about a slave. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, so you could sell someone into slavery... And, I'm left out, so I'm just giving the highlights here. And the master selects her for his son. So here's a guy, he may sell his wife, his, his daughter into slavery. Uh, 
it could be any kind of slave woman, slave wife, slave, slave girl, slave female. And then the master who owns her, selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he, that is the son, marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. So a wife, by covenant, is due, in the Bible here we're told, a slave wife is due food, clothing, and marital rights, sexual rights. If he does not provide her with these things, she is she's to go free without any payment of money. She doesn't pay a dowry or anything like that. She can she's free. She's free. She's divorced. Uh, this passage says that even a slave wife had the right to expect love from her husband. Jewish interpreters probably rightly deduce from this that this, these same rights were due to a free wife. So Paul may have picked up this language of these rights from that passage, but it's a common view in Jewish rabbis. The Jewish rabbis talk about this constantly. In verse 4, Paul explains why sexual relationships are due within marriage. This is a rather revolutionary thinking, contrary to the culture of the ancient world, where the husband had authority over all matters of the, his household. He was the potter familius. Paul says that in marriage, a person gives oneself to one's spouse and therefore, in a sense, comes under the authority of that one. So the, the idea is not possessing the body of the other person, Rather, in marriage, one does not have authority over one's own body to do with it as one pleases. Therefore, one cannot deprive the other, as we'll see in verse 5. So Paul puts sexual relationships in a Christian marriage on a higher level, on a much higher plane than we see in the Roman culture and in most cultures. In the Roman culture, in most cultures, a lot of cultures, um... Sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. The policy is a mutuality here between husband and wife. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul now explicitly prohibits the Corinthian viewpoint expressed in verse 1. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The verb translated deprive usually means to cause another to suffer loss by taking away through illicit means. It's translated sometimes rob, steal, despoil, defraud in the standard Greek dictionary. It's the same verb used in Exodus 21.10 that we discussed previously to prohibit the denial of sexual rights to the slave wife. In our culture, cheating refers to extramarital affairs, but for Paul, cheating means depriving one's spouse of the sexual relationships that are due them. In verses 5 through 6, Paul prohibits sexual abstinence within marriage since this can lead to extramarital sexual activity when one of the partners is tempted to commit immorality under the influence of Satan. However, Paul does make a hypothetical concession. Note the language, except perhaps by mutual consent, and that for a time. He makes a hypothetical concession to the Corinthian position of abstinence. They're arguing for abstinence totally within a marriage. He says, okay, there could be a temporary abstinence in special circumstances when it's by mutual consent, but only on a temporary basis. 
Now the example, I think he, he, he uses the, he uses prayer here, and I think that's an example. Paul used the example of prayer where there would be absence of the normal sexual relations in marriage. We can think of other examples, illness of a partner. In our day and age, the absence of a partner. Sometimes people travel, they're gone. In military, they're gone for six months or all kinds of reasons like that. So there are, there are a number of reasons why there, there, there could be abstinence for an extended period of time. But Paul is not saying that absence is not commanded and it's not the normal. Paul is quick to add in verse 6 that what he said about temporary spiritual abs- sexual absence within marriage is a concession, not a command. Paul means that sometimes there may be a sexual absence in marriage, but it will concede that he, he will concede that, but it's not a command and not the norm, not the Corinthian position, since that would lead to sexual immorality. Verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. It's often said that Paul here is referring to his own gift of celibacy. Merriam-Webster defines celibacy as, one, the state of not being married. So it can be used in the sense of the state of not being married. Two, abstention from sexual intercourse or abstention by vow from marriage, a celibate vow. But these definitions do not accurately describe the gift Paul is referencing, which is self-control. Verse 5, member says, there come, they come again so Satan will not tempt you because your lack of self-control. And verse 9 talks about being controlling themselves. But if they cannot control themselves, if they don't have this gift that I have, So, this is a gift of freedom from the desire for sexual fulfillment that made it possible for Paul to live without marriage. So, Paul has this gift. He doesn't have this desire, this need. He can control his sexual urges. Um, All those who are married must, according to Scripture, remain Uh, Excuse me. All those who are not married, all those who are not married must, according to Scripture, remain celibate in the sense of abstaining from sexual intercourse, whether or not they have what we might call the true gift of celibacy. Let me read that again. All those who are not married must, according to Scripture, remain celibate in the sense of abstaining from sexual intercourse whether or not they have what we might call the true gift of celibacy, freedom from the desire or the need for sexual fulfillment. There is no gift per se of singleness in this passage. There's no gift. Paul's not talking about a gift of singleness, though it's easier to remain so if one has Paul's gift, obviously. Nevertheless, single people must remain celibate whether they have the gift or not. That's what Scripture requires. Thus Paul is able to agree in this one instance with the Corinthian position that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not true for the married, 
But it is true for those who have the gift to be completely free from any need of sexual fulfillment. So Paul's gift concerns his capacity, as we'll see, particularly in the rest of the chapter, to concentrate on the work of the gospel without being distracted by sexual desires, normal sexual needs. As such, it's not a higher spiritual status. It's not a greater spiritual commitment, but it's a gift of God, something God gave him. It should be noted here that what uh, is true of Paul may not have always been true of Paul. Now, Paul, it seems to be the way he's described, is what we would call a Jewish rabbi. He's trained under Gamaliel. He's working for the Sanhedrin. He's involved there carrying out the Sanhedrin's action at the, at the stoning of Stephen. That suggests that Paul was probably one time married. We don't know that, but it suggests. Um, as verse 8 uh, suggests here, um, it says, uh, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Now that verse is talking about those who have been previously married. It kind of suggests that Paul may have been previously married. So we don't know for sure. But I would think, my best guess is that Paul had been previously married. And uh, my guess is he was probably a widower. Could be his wife left him. I don't know. This gift may have been given him at his conversion. But it's obvious that most Christians don't have Paul's gift. Most Christians don't have this gift. Widowers and widows must remain celibate or marry. Verse 9, verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. The meaning of the word unmarried in English naturally includes those who have never been married. But this Greek word, which is only used in this chapter in the New Testament, does not refer to those who have never been married, but to those who were once married, but are now single, what some have called demarried. So like in other places, verses 10 and 11, um, this to the married I give this command not I but the Lord a wife must not separate that is divorce her husband but if she does she has to remain unmarried so she's unmarried but she was previously married so the word unmarried means someone who's previously married 734 an unmarried woman or virgin so Paul distinguished between an unmarried woman that's somebody who's been previously married but is now unmarried and a virgin someone who's never been married So this word is used of someone who has been previously married but is not now married. It was also a word that was used for a widower, which is probably the case here in verse 8. Thus the unmarried and widows are those whose marriages have been dissolved through death, widowers and widows. Paul advises it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. If this understanding is correct, it might be an indication that Paul was once married but is now a widower. Um, So here is the first specific mention 
and the argument of the principle, remain as you are. Now, when we get next week to verses 17 through 24, Paul will three times mention this principle in life. When you become a Christian, he says, basically, just remain as you are. We'll see how that works out. Uh, Paul gives no reason here for his advice. It's good for these people who have been previously married to stay unmarried as I do. But we can probably assume it is the same in verses 25 through 35. Now this is rather odd advice. When Paul tells these widows, widowers and widows, it's good for them to remain unmarried as I do. I say this is rather odd advice. It goes against certainly what Jews would normally talk about. It kind of goes against what Paul says. Remember he says, 1 Timothy 5.14, so I counsel younger widows to marry. You know, there he tells younger widows at least to marry. He says, a woman is bound to her husband later on as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. So Paul is not laying down a command here. A woman's bound to her husband, but if, if he dies, she can marry whoever she wants to. Well, we get to it in verse 26. We get to it, and next week we'll, sit, we'll look, we'll see 25 through 35. He says, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. So this advice is about, about uh, here in verse uh, 8 and throughout the chapter, is conditioned on some special circumstances at Corinth. He says, because of the present crisis, I think it's better, you know, for you to remain as you are. Now, what that present crisis is, is unclear. We'll talk about that. Some think it's a famine. It could be some particular circumstances. So something has happened in Corinth to disrupt the social structure and fabric. And Paul is saying, apparently at the present time, I think it'd be better that you just remain as you are. I mean, we can we can think of a of a situation like that even in our society where you know some couple is planning to get married, you know, and then um, some disruption comes. Uh, one of the family members, the father or the mother, is very ill and they they're going to die in just a few weeks. They may say, "Well, we better, we better put this wedding off." And that's just a small example, but things can happen. We don't usually have the kind of societal things, but you know, if you lived in a certain certain countries where you had famines or floods or tornadoes or hurt, you know, you might this might put put a damper on things for a while. So we'll have to look at that when we get to twenty five through thirty five. What's behind this reluctance on Paul's to uh, approve marriage in many of these situations? Um. So he says uh, it's good for them to stay. But in verse 9, you'll have the first genuine exception. Namely, that people can get married if they cannot control their passions. Verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul recognizes that not not all people have the gift of self-control and therefore may fall into sexual immorality. The Greek text suggests a translation closer to the new RSV, but if they are not practicing self-control, 
This suggests something is going on. They are not now practicing self-control. That is, if they do not have the power over their passions, then the antidote for such sin is to get married. Finally, Paul gives the reason for that they should marry. It's better to marry or to be married than to burn with passion. Paul's point is that those who are contemplating or or committing sexual sin, either one, contemplating it, thinking about it all the time, or committing it, should marry rather than be consumed by the passions of their sins. So marriage is a proper alternative for those who are already consumed by sexual desire and are sinning. Paul is not saying here that um, that every couple that contemplates sexual sin or is actually engaging in sexual sin should marry. He's not saying that you know just because a couple is involved in an immoral sexual relationship, okay, they should marry. He's not saying that. Um, but widows and widow, widowers and widows, if they cannot follow Paul's example should, if possible, look to marriage rather than sexual sin. I mean, most cases, when two people are involved in sexual sin, we tell them, stop. <laughs> stop committing that sexual sin, you know. Um, you shouldn't just get married just because you're having sex together. That's not that's not a, a good uh, start to a marriage just because a couple is having sex. But it may be that they should get married. Maybe that that would be a good thing for them. D, divorce is not permissible for believers without biblical grounds. In this chapter, Paul addresses both men and women. Paul addresses the women first, usually, which may suggest that the problem is primarily concerned with some women in the church who were using the slogan, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, to reject sexual relations with their husbands, and arguing for divorce if it came to that. For Paul, this is an unbiblical ground for divorce. So that's what I'm saying. We're talking here in 7, 10 and 11, Paul says no divorce. And the reason is, is there's no biblical grounds. Verse 10. To be married, to the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. The married in verses 10 and 11 are believers. In verses 12 through 16, Paul addresses mixed marriages, a believer married to an unbeliever. In saying, I give this command, Paul remembers that Jesus himself spoke to this question. So he appeals to his authority. It is not I from whom this command comes, but the Lord. For many other issues that arose in the Gentile churches, Paul speaks on his own authority, which of course derives from the Lord, precisely because Jesus did not address such questions. However, in this present matter, on which Paul probably had not previously given instruction, there is a teaching from Jesus, so Paul appeals to it. Now, when we get to verses 12 through 16, Paul will say, I'm saying this, not the Lord, as we'll see, because Jesus didn't talk about this situation. Paul addresses the wise first. A wife must not separate from her husband. Maybe I should have said... The, the reason he appeals to the Lord's authority is when the Lord was giving instructions about divorce, i say this later, the Lord was talking about believer to believer. 
That is Jew to Jew. If you're a Jew, you're in the community, you're a believer. You're, you're a believing Jew. So the Lord, Jesus was talking about two Jewish people, two Jewish believers. And, and that's what we're talking about here, two believers now. So that's a similar situation. Jesus did not address the question of a Jew married to an unbeliever. That wasn't even allowed. He didn't address that situation. But Paul does, as we'll see here. So Paul addresses the wife first. A wife must not separate from her husband. The terms separate and divorce are used synonymously in this passage. There is there was absolutely no concept of legal separation in the Roman world. So people will sometimes read this and say, the wife must not separate. She shouldn't get a legal separation. That's just a bunch of baloney nonsense. There is no such thing as legal separation in the ancient world at all. Both these words mean divorce. No concept. The verb translated separate in verse 10 is also used in verse 11. But if she does separate, and twice in verse 15 translated leave. But if the unbeliever leaves, separates, let it be so. Literally let them leave. The point to note is that this separation in verse 11 produces an unmarried state. Remember verse 11 says, um, verse 11 says, read verse 11. If she does leave, if she does separate, same word, she must remain unmarried. So this word separate here that we're talking about is used in verse 11. But if she does separate, she must remain unmarried. So this separation is a divorce. Um, not some sort of legal separation. The point to note is that this separation produces an unmarried state. The Greek term separate was a technical term for divorce in Paul's day. So this Greek word was used throughout the literature of Paul's day to speak of divorce. Divorce in the Greco-Roman culture could be legalized by means of documents. But more often it simply happened. In this culture, divorce was divorce whether established by a document or not. Either the man sent his wife away, he divorced her, in the sense of verse 12, or else either of them left the other. They separated. Ordinarily, the wife divorces. Ordinarily, when the wife divorces, she simply leaves her husband. She's separated from him. The same verb is used in verse 15 of a pagan partner of either sex who leaves. And as I noted, it occurs regularly in contemporary documents for mutual divorce, agreeing to separate from one another. On the other hand, a man ordinarily divorced his wife, sent her away. Nonetheless, in verse 15, the wife can do the same. It says there, she must not divorce him. This is the same word that's used to the man is used to the woman. She must not send him away. So Paul says, in the case we're talking about here, where you don't have any biblical grounds... A wife must not separate, must not divorce her husband. Verse 11. But if she does, that is, if she does separate, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Taken together, verses 10 and 11 would seem to teach that in the case of believers, divorce is not permissible. And if it does happen, remarriage is not allowed. However, it's clear from the Old Testament that divorce and remarriage were permitted. I don't have time to go through the Old Testament here, but the Old Testament is very clear. Divorce was permitted. And Jesus himself permits divorce, Matthew 5, Matthew 19. Paul disallows divorce 
in this specific instance, because this, the, the divorce that is being contemplated here is for unbiblical grounds. The woman who initiates the divorce in verses 10 and 11 does so on unbiblical grounds. She doesn't have any grounds. Paul disallows divorce in the special case of these Corinthians because it, he knows it's not based on any biblical grounds that is like sexual immorality that Jesus talks about. I might add that in the Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish world, um, there was no category of lawful divorce that did not include remarriage. So there's all kinds of there have been all kinds of views about divorce and remarriage. Common view when I was coming along: no divorce, no remarriage. Uh, I think Piper John maybe maybe divorce, but no remarriage. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as divorce that didn't include remarriage. That's a totally unknown concept in Jewish world and the Roman world. If you had a divorce, that included the right to remarry. It always did. All right, E. Divorce is permissible in a mixed marriage when the unsaved party deserts the marriage. Paul continues the discussion of divorce, this time when one partner is a Christian and the other is an unbeliever. The believer may not initiate divorce strictly on the grounds that one partner is an unbeliever. Now, so let me make it clear about the previous verses. Paul said that the divorce was not allowed for the two Christians because she didn't have any biblical grounds. But there are biblical grounds. I just didn't, you know, a fornication that Jesus lists as a grounds for, for, for divorce, but I didn't list that. Here we're talking about the, the saved married to the unsaved. <clears throat> and Paul is saying, in this case, the believer cannot initiate a divorce strictly because you are married to an unbeliever. You get saved. The wife gets saved and the husband is not saved. The wife cannot initiate a divorce based upon the fact that the husband is unsaved. Or the, the, the husband gets saved and the wife is unsaved. The husband can't initiate a divorce on that basis. And Paul adds a reason why they should stay together here, verse 14, as we'll see, because of how it affects the family. Um, but there's an exception, he says. If the unbeliever chooses to leave, then okay. The marriage is, the believer doesn't have to maintain the marriage. Let's see how that works. Verse 12. To the rest I say this, <clears throat> I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So the rest are believers who are married to unbelievers. Since Paul forbids a Christian to marry an unbeliever in verse 39, the main situation he has in mind here is that after two unbelievers are married, one of them becomes a Christian. A Christian should not divorce their spouse simply because their spouse is not a Christian. The idea of what we think of as a mixed religious marriages in our modern world was generally unknown in the ancient world. It was considered essential that the wife share her husband's basic commitments. The writer Plutarch said, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods, these are pagan gods obviously, that her husband believes in, and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no gods, 
do stealthily and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor? So similarly, Jews were only allowed to marry in their faith. Other Jews, remember. The, the Old Testament is very clear on that. When Paul says, I, not the Lord, he's not suggesting that his instructions are not authoritative, but only that Jesus did not address the specific situation faced by the apostle. Jesus' comments about divorce were in the context of Jewish believers who were married to another Jewish, other Jewish believers. In other words, a believer married to a believer. That is why Paul could call on Jesus' teaching in verses 10 and 11. Jesus' earthly ministry, he directly addressed the issue Paul raises in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. And Jesus gave exceptions in Matthew 5, 32 and Matthew 19, 9. Remember there in the Gospels, the Jews were saying, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Any reason. That's the whole point. That's the whole discussion there. And Jesus said, nope. Nope, not for any reason. That's the school of Hillel. Not for any reason. They have to be, there are some biblical grounds. Uh, Paul, Paul raises, uh, excuse me, Paul does not repeat here, uh, let me go back and read that sentence. This is why Paul could call on Jesus' teaching in verses 10 through 11. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he directly address the issue Paul raises in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, two believers married, and gave exceptions that Paul does not repeat here because they're not applicable to the Corinthian situation. The Corinthians weren't raising a situation of, here's these two believers and one's committed adultery. That's not the situation. Paul, but Jesus did not address the issue Paul raises in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, a believer married to an unbeliever. So Paul himself speaks to this matter. Believers are not to initiate divorce simply on the grounds that one spouse is an unbeliever. <clears throat> Again, as in verses 10 and 11, Paul does not allow the believer to initiate a divorce because in the Corinthian situation, there are no biblical grounds. Being married to an unbeliever is not per se biblical grounds for divorce. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So beyond the fact that there were no clear biblical grounds for divorce in the situation where the believer is married to an unbeliever, or an unbelieving wife, unbelieving husband, unbelieving wife, Paul now gives an additional reason for why couples should stay together. This will create some problems because of the use of the word sanctified of the spouse and holy of the children. Clearly, Paul is not saying that the unsaved partner of a Christian is saved by simply being married to an unbeliever. Some Christians were arguing that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman as the reason to argue for sexual absence when married. They might have had an even stronger reason for sexual absence and ultimately divorce by appealing to the fact that their spouse is a pagan. They had apparently interpreted Paul's, uh, Paul's previous letter as instructing them to avoid immoral people, which would mean the average pagan. They could easily have interpreted that, that to a believer sharing the marriage bed with a pagan. So they could have argued that this association, hey, I'm a believer now, I can't associate with a pagan, that's defiling me in some way. But Paul says just the opposite. 
A believer is in no way defiled by the being married to an unbeliever. Instead, the unbeliever is sanctified in their marriage with the believer. The union is lawful and holy according to God's pattern for marriage. Marriage is a creation ordinance, not a particular Christian ordinance. That is, it's for all people, whether they're saved or lost. This sanctification does not mean that the unbeliever is thereby saved or made holy, but from Paul's perspective, by maintaining the marriage, the believer improves the potential of leading the unbeliever to salvation. The unbeliever is in a sense set apart to the things of God. To that degree, the unbeliever is sanctified in their relationship with the believing spouse. The unbelieving partner is influenced by the godly life and witness of the Christian spouse. So the family is under the holy influence of the believer and in that sense is sanctified. It's like Hebrews 10, 29, but we won't go there for time. In addition, the children at least have the advantage of being under the sanctifying influence of one parent so they may be called holy. 7.15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. That is, if they depart, they get a divorce, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So just because one is married to an unbeliever is not grounds for divorce, but now Paul includes an exception. The believer may not pursue divorce, but if the unbeliever abandons the marriage, let them, let him or her do so. That is, if the unbelieving spouse physically deserts the Christian spouse, for various reasons, maybe because they reject the spouse's faith, whatever, then the Christian is no longer obligated to stay married. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. That separation refers to physical, spatial, spatial, spatial desertion that essentially constitutes divorce. There is no distinction between separation and divorce in Roman law. Anyone who separated with a view to ending the marriage was considered fully divorced without the need for any written deed or court appearance according to one expert on this subject. There was no contesting a divorce in the Roman world. The believer is not bound to the marriage in that case. When a spouse physically deserts their Christian spouse, the Christian is free to divorce because they are not enslaved to the marriage. The Christian is free to remarry. There is no concept in Paul's day of divorce that did not include remarriage. This is also shown by a comparison with the similar language of the widow in verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. The person is no longer bound, just like the widow is no longer bound if her husband dies. Here the person is no longer enslaved or bound. They're free to remarry. The final words, God has called us to live in peace, are probably explained in verse 16. The believers should not deliberately cling to a marriage that a partner wants to dissolve. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? A Christian wife or husband is not obligated to wait indefinitely to reconcile. Now, we hope they can reconcile. I mean, when separation occurs, we're working for reconciliation always. In any case, any marriage, we're always working for reconciliation. But Paul is saying here, you don't have to wait indefinitely to reconcile with a non-Christian spouse who has physically deserted them since the believer has no assurance the unbeliever will be saved and want to reconcile. 